Hey everyone, welcome back to Achieve Great Things. This is Season 2, Episode 4. In this episode, we talk with Delegate David Reed, who is a new member of the Virginia House of Delegates. We got connected with him through our last guest, Josh Ulibari. And one of the things we're trying to do this season is talk to people who have communicated particularly effectively in this new era. Delegate Reed uh, beat a Republican in a district that had been Republican for almost 10 years. Uh, We talked to him a lot about his race, about what he learned about communicating both with voters and with fellow legislators once once he was in the House of Delegates, and a lot more. It was a really good conversation. We hope you enjoy it. We're going to continue to talk to people this season who have been communicating and who have been successful communicating in this era. We're hoping to continue to glean insights from people about what they've found to be useful and effective. As always, please get in touch with us. Let us know what you think of the podcast. You can email us at podcast.hadaway.com. You can find us on Twitter at HadawayCom or on Facebook. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back in just a couple weeks with another episode. Enjoy. All right, so I'm here with Delegate David Reed. Hey, Delegate, how are you doing? Very, very well. Thanks very much. It's nice to be on your podcast today. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. This is... Um, Something we're tr- we've been trying to do is talk to people who have kind of experienced, you know, this communi- communications in the in the Trump era and, and had success. So we're really excited to, to talk to you um, and excited to pass along some of the learning from your your race and your um, sort of experience to others. So I guess just for background, you you won a race against a Republican who had held the office in District 32 in Virginia since 2009. So. You, you beat him pretty handily. It was, I think, 58-41. Um, and to, to be fair, it was one of the districts that, that Clinton won in 2016. But given the fact that your district had been held by a Republican for, you know, the better part of 10 years, um, how, did, how did that happen? I mean, what's your sort of take on it, on how the, the race flipped and, or how the district flipped and how the race went? Yeah, RJ, that's a, that's a really good question because what what we really focused on is that there were really three things. One is that donors, we, we wanted to be able to outreach to donors, doors, canvassing was so important in a race like this. And the third thing was actually having an economic message that was relevant specifically to this district. And that's the reason why the three key things that I ran on were issues related to reducing the cost of college affordability, so making college more affordable and the cost of the tolls on the greenway that go through the district here. And third, making sure that full-day kindergarten was available to all of the residents here in Loudoun County. Because even though we are one of the wealthiest counties in the nation, we were still one of three jurisdictions in Virginia that did not have full-day kindergarten. And when you combine rising cost of college tuition people not being able to have their child in full-day kindergarten and paying $6.50 one way for a toll every day, then that adds up to a real pocketbook hit, and those were things that I ran on and focused on as part of the campaign. Was that contrast message for you, or were you just not as worried about the contrast with your opponent and just focused, tried to focus on what people cared about and were interested in? So there was a bit of a contrast in that during the time that my opponent had been in, the cost of college tuition had been going up significantly every year. In some instances, the the state universities here in Virginia had been increasing the cost of college tuition by upwards of seven, eight, nine percent. And so that was going on on his watch. 
the lack of focus on doing anything to try to make sure that whether it was a state contribution or using your office to advocate for full-day kindergarten was also something that he had done nothing about. And on the Greenway specifically, he had actually taken thousands of dollars in donations from the owners of the Greenway. So he was never going to be inclined to actually advocate to reduce the cost of the tolls for the constituents. So there was a significant contrast that I could draw between what I was going to try to do and what he had not done. Got it. Yeah, that's that's super helpful to hear. And I guess one, one thing we talk about a lot on this podcast, especially as it relates to communications, is um, not getting distracted by, you know, the latest tweet from the president or the latest um, debate about your issue that that's not going to actually help you in the in the long run. And, and in my experience working on campaigns, it's an incredible challenge for a campaign to stay focused on the proactive message when you have so many distractions and, and otherwise. I mean, you like you said, stayed focused on these sort of kitchen table issues um, when all this other stuff was going on in the national conversation, whether it was tweets or misconduct or immigration, whatever it was. How did you stay focused on that and and not get distracted by the broader um, conversation? I think the way that I was able to stay focused on it is that I believe that from the very beginning, when I looked at the possibility of running and I said, what is important to me and whether or not this will be important to the rest of the district, that was kind of the first yardstick that I used. The other thing is, is that I wanted to be running for something. I wanted to be running for something that I was going to be trying to do and achieve for the constituents and not just running against something. I'll give you a good example. There was a particular door that I went to when I was canvassing and knocked on the door and the gentleman opens it up and he says, this is a Trump household. What do you think about that? And I said, well, I'm not running for that office, <laughs> but I'd like to talk to you about some things here locally. So he goes, okay, fine. And he invites me in. I meet his wife and we talk about his telescope, what he does for work. And he says, I think I might vote for you, even though I voted for Trump. And the, the wife kind of smacks him on the arm and says, of course you are. You don't invite somebody into your house if you're not going to vote for him. <laughs> and that was kind of what was repeated over and over again. I stayed focused on the local issues and the local campaign, and I focused on running for something because I knew that both Secretary Clinton as well as then-President Trump were both somewhat polarizing figures to certain parts of the electorate, and I just wanted to stay focused on what was important to my campaign. That's amazing. And, you know, one thing you didn't say, but I picked up from that is that you were listening to people. Um, and Oh, yeah. I mean, I got to tell you, when I, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but when I would go around to doors, and this was advice I'd gotten from the gentleman who held the seat before I did, the Democrat who held the seat before I did. So there was an eight-year interim with a Republican between two Davids, David Poisson and now me, David Reed. Mm-hmm. And he had given me this advice, go to the door. Everybody's going to give you a script, but go to the door, do your initial introduction. Hi, this is who I am. This is what I'm running for. And then ask the person, what is it that is important to you that you think we need to change? Begin a dialogue, begin a conversation, because it is so important for the people to understand that it really is about them. And that and that's what you're trying to do and trying to help, as opposed to just reciting a script and then they close the door and you go on. Every time that I would go to the door, I would have a different conversation with someone, which made me a better 
candidate, and I believe it made me a better delegate because it prepared me for the wide variety of issues that I was going to have to face. That's that's really good to hear, and I appreciate that anecdote. I mean, you know, the I feel like listening is very um, undervalued in today's age. Maybe it's partially social media and partially the way people, you know, attention spans. It's it's sort of like we, we know we only have a minute or, or a second of people's attention, so mm-hmm. say, try to say everything you can. But um, I'm glad that we can continue to get this reinforced, right, that listening is key to effective communication in a lot of ways. Can I tell you, since you bring that up, can I tell you my four lessons learned from being a first session legislator? Please. So number one, because we picked up a lot of seats, but we did not pick up the majority, you must be able to do basic math. And 51 is still greater than 49. (laughs) And everything else flows down from that. Second, and I will say that there are some people in government who have never learned this, is you have to transition from campaigning to governing. And that means taking all those great ideas and turning that into... Virginia code so that we can actually make a difference in people's lives. Yep. The third thing, again, going back to lessons learned number one, you have to be able to develop relationships, whether it's within your party or across the aisle, because we have to work harder at being able to find the middle ground and find solutions to these issues. And the fourth thing, because you, you brought this up and made me think about it, is to be able to listen. Listen and show some empathy for what people are dealing with in different parts of the state, because things that are important here in Northern Virginia, say transportation, metro, those type of things, are not the same things that are important in the southern southern part of the state where they are losing population. They have higher unemployment rate, different issues, but we have to be empathetic if we're going to be able to work together to find a common solution for the entire state. How do you? How did you find the working relationships in the House of Delegates when you got there? I'm just curious if if people are, um, I don't know, if your experience with you know forming relationships and and listening to people, it, can I be hopeful and say that that has um, translated into broader um, discussions or or not yet? I think it has translated into broader discussions. Again, initially there were 16 new Democrats and there were three new Republicans. So fully 19 or about, what, 20% of the entire General Assembly turned over. So there was a lot of learning going on, not just amongst the two different caucuses, but also across the aisle. I have somewhat of an advantage because I grew up very poor in the mountains of Virginia. I lived in Richmond, Virginia, the capital, for six years when I was living at the Methodist Children's Home before I got adopted. Mm. And now I live in Northern Virginia, and I've also done Navy duty down in the Tidewater area. So I have a very broad view of Virginia as a whole, and that allowed me to go and talk to delegates that represent the areas down in Southern and Southwest Virginia, because I have relatives who are still down there, or I'm able to talk to people about things that are going in the Tidewater area. Because, again, I've, I've served down in that area. So I was able to hopefully kind of develop new relationships based upon where I've lived and what I've done and those types of things. And I think that it really did help me to be able to be somewhat successful as a freshman delegate. I, had, I introduced 23 pieces of legislation, which was second only to Elizabeth Guzman. And I will say that the Republican chairs and of the subcommittees and the full committees gave every one of my pieces of legislation a full and fair hearing. 
And I think that's partly to how I conducted myself, the fact that I would go around and talk to them before my legislation came to the floor so that I could share my thoughts and ideas with them. Sometimes they would ask very tough questions in private, and I would get those same tough questions at the subcommittee or the committee, but it was not a surprise. And a couple of the pieces of my legislation about full-day kindergarten and putting a four-year freeze on college tuition both came out of the Education Committee by a 17-4 to vote, which meant that I got many Republicans supporting it, even got a couple of Republican co-patrons. So I believe, I really do believe that there is an opportunity to work together. We just have to go back to what you were saying. We have to listen. We have to be a little bit empathetic, and we have to understand what other people are going through. And what I guess I want to go back to just the the race a little bit, just to as a candidate for the first time, right? That was the first time you run you'd run for um, office. Yes, it was effectively. I twenty years ago, and no kidding, it is about twenty years ago because my oldest daughter now is graduating from college, and the first time that I ran when we were living in Alexandria, it was in a Democratic Party firehouse caucus. So it was me and three other Democrats, and I came in second out of four. But then there was nothing else that I ran for in the 20 years in between. So most people say, yes, this was the first time you ran for anything because it was the first time that I ran for anything in a truly competitive race as opposed to a Democratic firehouse primary. Got it. And what what was the most... um... I guess, surprising thing about being a candidate for office. Is there anything that jumps out of you that was just not what you expected or, or much different than you expected? I think the most surprising thing is just how much I enjoyed it. I really do enjoy being out and talking to people and listening to their concerns and interacting with them. I find that in the work that I do as a defense contractor here in Northern Virginia, I go to work every day to find solutions to problems, and there are so many problems that are just crying out for solutions in the realm of governing that it is just such a natural fit for my personality. And so I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy listening to what their concerns are, and I have enjoyed also very much greatly the opportunity to go down to Richmond and then actually trying to turn some of those things into legislation to make a difference in people's lives. That's really cool, and I'm, I'd love to hear that motivation. Um, it's one thing we like to ask our guests is, you know, people who are out there communicating on behalf of progressive issues, we like to try to ask, you know, if there's an idea or a specific um, insight or something to keep in mind as you're communicating that you think could help people communicate more effectively based on your experience. Is there anything that you would throw out there for people? I think one of the things that I would throw out, and I have shared this with other candidates, and, and it is... It is what has allowed me to be successful because I have a degree in political science, but I've worked in a wide variety of industries over the course of my professional career. And in every last one of those, I have relied on the subject matter experts to be able to know the information and know what needs to be done and how to be done correctly. And so for me, when I was putting together a campaign staff and I hired a really good campaign manager and then I allowed her to go out and actually choose who our mail firm was going to be, and we worked with the caucus on the polling firm, I relied very heavily on the experts. I asked a lot of tough questions so that I could understand what was going on, but I relied on them to be the experts. And we had a lot of back and forth, but in the end, it was one of those things where they would actually 
design the pieces based upon the polling and the messaging that we were trying to achieve. And I would get them when they were at a 99% get ready to go. And I would look and go, yeah, you know, that's really good. That's on point. Because my job was to focus on being the candidate. And I had hired someone to be the campaign manager and someone else to be the mail firm and someone else to be the polling firm. And so you have to be willing to hire good people and then let go and let them do their job. And I think that was the key to my success. Nice. That's that's helpful. And I guess last question, is this um... – I think everyone watching the races in Virginia wants want to know, and I hope you have the answer. Is this the beginning of a of a sort of blue wave, or or of a um, you know progressives being able to kind of come back and from what happened in 2016? Um, curious as to your thoughts on that. I know you don't probably have the answer, but curious to get your take on that. Well, well, I will say this: I, I'm very proud of what we did and what we accomplished here in Virginia. And I heard from people from all over the nation afterwards. Fr- friends, you, you run into someone at an event or something, and they say, "I'm from Oregon. I'm from California." What happened here in Virginia really created a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of belief for people that, okay, we're not just going through the motions. We really can make a difference. And so, I'm very proud of what we were able to do there. The thing that I will say is that we cannot rest on our laurels. We can't take it for granted. When I've gone and spoken to young groups of people, I said, you now have a taste for winning. You have a taste for what it takes to win and the hard work that goes into that. But winning creates a habit of winning because now you know what it is that you need to do. So now we've got to repeat this in 2018. And please don't forget those of us that are in off-year elections when we're running again in 2019. We now know what it takes to be able to do this. So if we become complacent, again, it's at our own peril because I don't think that the Republicans are going to get caught napping again. And so we have to work really hard. We can't take anything for granted that just because some congressional candidates are running against Donald Trump in 2018, we can't take anything for granted that they're going to actually win because the Republicans have now been put on the notice and they are going to be putting a lot of money and a lot of effort into being able to keep those seats in both Congress and in the Senate. And we're probably going to face an even, big, even bigger challenge from 2019 because the, the drop-off in voters, to give you an idea, here in Virginia, presidential year 2016, about 72 percent. And wow. off-year election 2017, 47 percent. When you get down to 2019, you're looking at 29%. And if we don't make sure that the majority of that 29% goes out and votes for Democrats, then we're looking at possibly giving back seats. And we don't want to do that because, again, we like where things are going right now, and we like the winning feeling. And I believe that we are doing positive things in the Virginia General Assembly. So now let's just make this a repeatable process so we can keep doing it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Delegate David Reed, we really appreciate your time and sharing some of your experiences with us. Thanks for coming on the podcast. We really do appreciate it. And and thank you very much, RJ. I really do appreciate you doing this. I appreciate you sharing this information with other folks. And I look forward to joining you again sometime in the future. Thanks for tuning in to Achieve Great Things. Reach out to us on Twitter at HadawayCom, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hadaway Communications, or email us at podcast at Hadaway.com. We appreciate your support. 
and please keep the feedback and comments coming. Until next time, thanks again.